Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Prepare yourself for some technical roughhousing this evening. I'm in a basement in the eastern part of Europe, rather closer to the war zone than I would have chosen to be if I'd known what was going to happen in Moscow last night. In fact, I'm in a place where the first rockets will fall if this becomes an all-out, no-holds-barred general European war. And don't think I'm exaggerating, because what happened last night changes everything. The drone attacks on the Kremlin, which could well have killed the president of the Russian Federation in his government headquarters, in his residence. As a matter of fact, he wasn't even there, but he could have been there. And the fact that these two drones were able to land on the roof of the Kremlin is a matter of the gravest significance, as all but the most stupid can surely work out. Of course, the Russians say that they shot these drones down. I'm not in a position to say whether they did or whether they didn't, though if they didn't, they definitely would claim that they did. The video I have seen, if genuine, seems to suggest that both of these drones hit their target. Now, the question of where these drones were launched from is, of course, an apposite one. And some fools, the same kind of fools, who told us that Russia blew up by its own pipeline, that the Nord Stream 2, a 21 billion euro investment, half of it paid by Russia, was blown up by Russia so that they could never again supply gas to Europe when they were doing rather nicely, doing so over decades in the past. The same kind of fools are now saying that Russia landed two rockets on its own Kremlin heartland in order, I don't know, to do what? To justify an escalation? Well, escalation there definitely will be, whether it was a false flag operation or not. Think about it. It's a matter of simple logic. If it was a false flag, its purpose was to justify escalation. If it wasn't a false flag, escalation will definitely be the result. So it's otios as a question. Uh, who did this deed? The deed was done and filmed. And it is a matter, I'm sure, of the greatest embarrassment in Moscow that the Kremlin was apparently defenseless, at least until the last moments, to hostile enemy ordnance being launched by Ukraine or by people acting for Ukraine. And I want to turn to that matter now. Some people say, well, uh, drones of that size could not have flown all the way from Ukraine. They must have been launched inside Russian territory. Well, I don't know if that is true or not. 
I know that the rocket time from the Ukrainian border, as was, to Russia is only a couple of minutes. So I'm not necessarily convinced that these drones could not have flown from the Ukraine. But if they were launched inside Russia, they were clearly launched by agents of Ukraine. But I want to widen the circle of responsibility much more significantly. Blinken, the Secretary of State for the United States of America, said that he absolutely could not verify that these two drone weapons had landed on the Kremlin, even while the rest of us were watching it on screen. I don't know if it made terrestrial television, but it made everybody else's screen light up uh, at the moment that it did so. I was woken and told to get onto my screen and saw it actually happening, but Blinken absolutely could not verify. The Pentagon then later said that they had no advanced knowledge of this attack on the Kremlin. Well, whether they did or whether they didn't, the responsibility is theirs. Ukraine long ago lost agency in this conflict. Ukraine is not in a position to make a peace settlement, as we all know, as Boris Johnson was sent to remind them. Ukraine cannot prosecute the war without the wherewithal being constantly shoveled into them by the other NATO powers. And all those NATO powers are all under the direction of the United States of America. Only Hungary and Turkey can be said to be independent players any longer inside NATO, and NATO can do what it likes, whether Hungary and Turkey like it or not. So the ultimate responsibility for this attack on the Kremlin lies in the White House in Washington, D.C. I mentioned the White House because I want to ask you to imagine just for a moment an Iranian drone attack on the White House, on the Lincoln bedroom or wherever Joe Biden sleeps, on the bathroom on which he sits for many hours, I'm told, every evening and through the nighttime hours. Imagine if a Chinese drone or an Iranian drone or a Cuban drone or a Venezuelan drone, never mind two of those, had landed on top of the White House. What would now be the American response? I'm asking you to imagine that because I'm now going to ask you to imagine what Russia is going to do. Now, all the signs are that Putin is a canny fellow, calm, cool, collected, despite all the efforts to paint him as some kind of madman who woke up one morning and decided to attack his neighbor. All the signs are to the contrary of that. As a matter of fact, I know many Russians who think he's far too canny, cool, and collected, far too controlled in the way in which he is conducting this conflict. And many of those are in the military or are ex-military. So I'm asking you to imagine what pressure is now on President Putin to answer this provocation as it turned out, but what could have been 
the decapitation of the Russian state. It's that serious. The entire leadership of the Russian Federation could have been in that building and presumably frequently are. Now, in former times, the military officers responsible for guarding the Kremlin would have already been up against the wall in the Lubyanka and shot for negligence. And it's not a mistake that is likely to be allowed to happen again. Neither is it a provocation, an assassination attempt that is going to go unanswered. So what will the answer be? Well, I'm no lawyer, but Russia now has the right of self-defense under international law. And that right of self-defense is not just against the immediate belligerent in the special military operation, which will now presumably have to be declared to be a war, an actual war rather than an SMO. But that right of self-defense extends to those who assisted Ukraine or its agents to conduct an assassination attempt on the leadership of Russia. What would you do? What would any country do? What would any country do if another country attempted to decapitate its leadership in an act of military aggression? Something which, incidentally, the cool, calm, and collected Putin has not done to Vladimir Zelensky. Throughout more than a year of conflict, he's been free to walk around with each and every international visitor from Ursula von der Leyen to Bono of U2. He's been in and out like a fiddler's elbow into the bunker in Kiev. And they walk around the streets. Even Joe Biden did it. And Russia did not attack them. But it will now surely have to show that it has the wherewithal and the will to actually do so. And so it's quite likely, but I can't guarantee it, that the first retaliation will fall on Ukraine and on the Ukrainian leadership. That's why the leader, Zelensky, has run away. Don't think I'm just insulting him. The Finnish government has announced that though Zelensky is in Finland, and was supposed to be there for one day, he is now going to stay in Finland for an indeterminate period, maybe forever, maybe as a staging post on the way to Miami or Tel Aviv or whichever beach Zelensky is now thinking of spending the rest of his life on. The fact is, the Ukrainian leadership, whether Zelensky or the broader leadership, are now entirely legally open to deadly retaliation from Russia. And it would seem to me that however cool, calm, and collected Vladimir Putin is, he's not going to be able to sit this one out. That widens the war, makes the war escalate in a dramatic way, a more dramatic way than anything that's happened during the last 14 months. And that must put pressure on Europe to get off the pot or to piss. If they are on this pot, they better start pissing. 
And if they want to get off the pot, they better get off it quickly. And that's why we must hope that somebody sane in the European Union, in the European half of the NATO membership, will call a halt to this. Maybe it will be Germany, which has the most to lose, which already has lost the most. Maybe it will be France, whose leader could do with a bit of distraction on international affairs. If you get my drift, a break from his forces, plubbing, gassing, and shooting his own people on a daily basis on the streets of France, all the streets of France, not just Paris, but sleepy hamlets and Riviera Resort are filled with angry protesters being gassed and clubbed and shot by Macron's police. This would probably be a good time, President Macron, to launch some kind of dramatic foreign intervention to bring about a halt to this conflict before this escalation gets even more out of control. That's not all we'll be talking about tonight, but I've no doubt it will dominate. But there are other issues. Let's start with the United States itself. Let's start with the ever plummeting poll ratings and IQ intelligence quotient of the American leadership. You know, I always make the joke that Richard Nixon was sure nobody would ever shoot him because Spiro Agnew was next in line. Well, nobody's going to shoot Joe Biden because Kamala Harris is next in line. And if you thought Joe Biden's videos were embarrassing, you haven't seen Kamala Harris yet. This woman is on laughing gas or on LSD. You'd certainly need to be on LSD to understand a word that she is saying. Poor little President Marcos of the Philippines was stood next to her the other day where she uttered forth a stream of consciousness so hallucinogenic that Marcos was left utterly bemused as to what he could possibly say in reply. And this woman is a faint heartbeat away from the presidency of the United States of America. The Democratic Party is now in a state of crisis, that it has an Alzheimer's patient as its nominee and a lunatic as his running mate. Now, that might or might not, depending on the level of cheating involved, allow them to win the election, but how can it possibly allow them to govern in a way that doesn't look like the inmates of Ward 5 of Bellevue or Broadmoor, the hospital for the criminally insane in England, running the show. And therefore, they must, they must, as a matter of simple logic, be hoping that somebody else can ride to the rescue. Is that person Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? I don't know about you. I'm not giving him a blank check or anything. I just read the other day his stuff from the Russia, early Russiagate period of RFK Jr.'s scribbles back in 2018. 
he was off the wall talking about Russia Gate, how Russia had cheated America out of Hillary Clinton's presidency and so on. Absolutely atrocious stuff. I prefer his more recent work. His more recent work is pretty impressive. If elected, he's going to end the war in Ukraine. If elected, he's going to pardon Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. If elected, he's going to open the books, I hope, on the murder of his own father and the books on the murder of his own uncle, but all the other books, for sure, the books about the criminal conspiracy that existed between the United States deep state and the big tech oligarchs of Facebook and Twitter as was, and no doubt many others. The criminal nexus in defiance of the US Constitution itself, which existed to conspire to deny the people of America their First Amendment rights and much, much more. I think that RFK Jr., if the Democratic Party had any sense, would be an answer to their problems. But if not, then it's becoming obvious that RFK Jr. is going to have to make a third party run the very thing that Bernie Sanders could and should have done when the Democratic Party cheated him. And last, and definitely least. My own country of Britain, which I haven't seen for quite some time, is in the grip of coronation mania. People are lighting up public buildings. People are preparing street parties. No, not that many. Not as many as there once would have been. In order to watch Queen Camilla. I'm not making that up. That's what we've got to call her from now on, Queen Camilla and King Charles III crowned with stolen jewels in a ceremony costing £250 million on a manifesto of a slimmed down monarchy. The country is gripped with whether Harry and Meghan are going to show up and how long they're going to stay and it all sums up the faded grandeur, not just of the British royals, but of Great Britain itself. We'll be talking to the member of parliament who did more to expose the malfeasance in the royal household than any other. The Right Honourable Norman Baker will be one of our guests tonight. Because I have no clock, I have no idea how long I have spoken. I pray it was not too long, and I pray that you heard each and every word of it. In which case, give me 60 seconds, and I'll be right back with the rest of the show. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Let's start with unquestionably the biggest story of the night or any night, the attack on the Kremlin last night. Because let's face it, this actually could contain the seeds of an explosion that will wipe everything else away, including thee and me. It will not matter what tin pot king is sitting on the throne of Britain if Britain no longer exists. It will not matter if RFK Jr. or Kamala Harris is president of the United States if the United States is a heap of radioactive ash. Let's go to Russia, to Mike Jones, an Englishman abroad, a former military man, now a journalist and broadcaster and an analyst of great acuity. He lives in St. Petersburg, which is not Moscow, but I'm sure that he has taken the temperature of the public opinion in Russia over the last 12 hours or so. He is Mike Jones, a very popular guest on the Mother of All talk shows, and I'm glad to welcome him again this evening. Mike, pretty dramatic uh, events. Tell us how it was for you. Did the earth move at the same time as it moved for the rest of us? When did you learn of what had happened and what are people saying? Uh, thanks again for having me, Mr. Galloway. I'll correct the record. I'm actually in Moscow. Um, that's um, okay. where I was today. I've moved there now from St. Petersburg. Uh, so, Even yeah, better. I was in the thick of it today. Yeah. yeah, I was in the thick of it today, and I was at the Red Square not long ago, where you'll note the um, 9th of March Victory Day parade preparations are already there. They featured in the footage of this drone strike today. I learned of this event around afternoon when it was reported and the the attack itself i won't go into too many details i'm sure the viewers are aware of many of the sort of basics there really quite amateurish by the looks of it and uh, there were some conflicting words used in the news reports that i've reported on where they say how the drone was disabled uh, people are believing that this what was disabled was the guidance system as opposed to the explosives because there was quite clearly an explosion if this was an attempt on President Putin's life, as the Russian media is sort of claiming, well, it was pretty sloppy. It's not a surprise that Kiev has denied any responsibility for this, but uh, it's, it's not likely, really, in many people's view, that this could be a false flag attack. That's been another theory that uh, certainly people have commented on, that this is being used as some form of justification by Russia. 
Uh, I, I don't really give that theory too much credence, given the fact that one of the measures taken by the government in Moscow was to ban all any and all use of drones. So I believe the Russians uh, have enough evidence to believe that this drone uh, took off in Russian territory very close to the Kremlin, uh, was likely um, piloted by saboteurs or at least set on its course by um, SBU operatives. Uh, I think that's the um, official theory. What's more concerning uh, for me than anything else is now the almost violent rhetoric that's coming out of pretty prominent voices. We have uh, Vyacheslav Bolodin, who is one of the state Duma representatives. He is now calling Kiev a terrorist state, pretty much asking for the gloves to come off now. And of course, right up there, as always, Dmitry Medvedev, who even is going so far as to call for the removal of Zelensky. Uh, he's saying how Hitler was not required to sign the surrender of Nazi Germany. So why should uh, why should Zelensky be preserved? There's then um, commentary that this breaches an almost unspoken agreement between Moscow and the West, because remember, we're dealing with the West, not just with Ukraine here, about not attacking political leaders. We know this story from the Israeli ambassador when he uh, visited um, Zelensky and assured Zelensky that he was not uh, under threat, despite the air raid sirens that went off theatrically for Joe Biden. Uh, so it's always been a kind of, uh, unwritten rule that certainly Zelensky wouldn't be targeted with this attack, which is believed to target Putin. There's now calls for the gloves to come off. And I have seen a notification this evening that Kiev, among nine other regions, have now sounded an air raid alert. Yes, of course, there are air raids alerts uh, very regularly. There's a lot of air raids. Uh, the question is, what are the targets? Because Russia has not attacked the uh, vital state organs of the Kiev government, still less have they attacked the President Zelensky. And as you rightly say, the former Prime Minister of Israel assured Zelensky that Putin had assured him uh, that Zelensky's life was not at risk. Uh, although, of course, things can happen by accident. It ain't no accident when you land two drones on top of the Kremlin. Uh, let me play devil's advocate with you. Uh, there's not much doubt that it was a terrorist act if it was launched inside Russian territory, as you more or less confirm it must have been, uh, by saboteurs, and it landed on the rooftop twice of, uh, of the heart of Russian government. That's a terrorist attack, and the state that sponsored it can quite obviously be described as a terrorist state. Ditto, what else but an assassination attempt? Can it be if you land two explosive drones on the roof of the building in which, at least nominally, Vladimir Putin lives and works? Now, we're told that they would say that anyway, uh, that Putin wasn't in the building, uh, that he works and presumably lives somewhere else, but the person who launched the attack could not know that. I mean, you could, if you launched an attack on the Lincoln bedroom and Joe Biden was sleeping in another bedroom, he wouldn't be able to claim it wasn't a terrorist attack, it wasn't an assassination attempt, because I wasn't in that bedroom. 
uh, it would be quite obviously an assassination attempt. So if you've got a terrorist attempt by a neighboring state to assassinate your leader, what else but taking the gloves off could Russia possibly do? There's, there's the other idea that this is a sort of symbolic attack. Um, but yeah, I believe the intentions are pretty clear here um, of what uh, what was meant to be achieved. This is actually an embarrassment for, for the Russian authorities. Russian television has been fairly tight-lipped. They haven't, from what I'm told, given it too much coverage, which is quite understandable because there's no, it doesn't matter how you cut it. This is a strike, as you've said, deep in the heart's of the russian federation almost trying to cut the head off the government there so it's it's still a bit of a failing that this even occurred at all uh, in regards to the russian authorities and you're right like i say this rhetoric now coming out of taking the gloves off of there was even talk of threats up into nuclear weapons we've already already had some talk you know of belarus having the hosting these nuclear weapons on behalf of the russian federation uh, we have had similar talk before, uh, and especially we saw it with General Surovikin when he unleashed a wave of missiles against Ukraine and Kiev in particular, cutting the power. Uh, I'm not sure really, I'm well, I'm quite concerned really as to what options we have left. Defense Minister Shoigu warned about this. He said, we're taking, we're going up the ratchet in the steps, but there aren't many steps left. And he's trying to really... Uh, ram that message home to the West. We've already had it said before, you're playing with fire. This really is quite a reckless and irresponsible uh, attack by the Kiev regime. And they, whilst they've denied it, I've already seen designs of uh, postage stamps to commemorate this event that they also claim they had nothing to do with, which seems rather yeah. odd to me. They did the same with the Kerch Bridge, of course. Uh, they said that the Russians had blown up the Kerch Bridge themselves. Uh, but they made a postage stamp uh, of the explosion anyway. They, uh, uh, of course, uh, helped to spread the lie that Russia had blown up the Nord Stream. Uh, and now they're uh, implying that something, I'll go further than you, deeply embarrassing for Russia that this happened. That's why I said earlier, in former times, trust me, I knew those times very well, uh, the military people in charge of the security over Moscow would already have been shot dead in the Lubyanka uh, because uh, this is a gigantic embarrassment for Russia. Uh, and uh, I've no doubt that's why the TV is playing it down uh, because it is, it's a national embarrassment. I could go further, but I don't want to rub it in. Uh, it is therefore likely, I mean, any way you dice it, it has to mean further escalation, Mike, doesn't it? It does. Um, we, we've now had these talks of the beginning of this much vaunted Ukrainian counteroffensive, and I believe perhaps even that's part of it. This may even be a signal uh, to the elements of the SBU uh, that you know things are kicking off. Prigozhin today has warned that the active phase of the Ukrainian counteroffensive is due to begin. Zelensky himself in Finland today also hinted about it, um, whereas he was banging his begging bowl for F-16 fighters. Uh, he was talking about this counteroffensive coming on. So uh, I think maybe uh, Russia has launched some preemptive strikes to try and keep this counteroffensive if it, it ever does take place at bay. Whether we now see the mobilized troops that we've not yet heard from for a long time activated, 
possibly even coming down from Belarus as uh, Kiev has feared and the West has feared for a long time. We don't know. Unfortunately, it's all speculation at this point. But the one thing I will say that kind of reassures me is that Russia has always been patient, calm and calculated and not emotional and not reactionary in a knee-jerk fashion. They have often launched retaliatory strikes and the Ministry of Defense has stated as such, but usually they're not knocked out of um, their plan. Shoigu as well has often stated this, that they won't be keeping to any any schedule of anyone else but their own and they will achieve their objectives in their time. Whether uh, they have to do something political to placate the people like Medvedev, like uh, State Duma Representative Volodin, to try and give give them um, some reassurance as well that there is an answer for this. Uh, we shall see in the coming days, I'm sure. Yeah, tr trust in the process, as people used to tell me about Ole Gunnar Scholzkar's disastrous mm. period as manager of Manchester United. But I digress. What's going to happen with the military parade? Just for the international viewers, this is uh, arguably the highlight of Russian public life. Uh, it is in commemoration of the world historic role uh, of the Red Army, the USSR, Russia as the successor state, its role in defeating Hitler fascism, liberating Berlin from the jackboot of Nazism, which killed the best part of 100 million people around the world, including many millions of people in Europe, if not for Russia. Uh, that kind of regime might well still be in power uh, in Germany and throughout Europe and by extension throughout the world. So a pretty big deal. It's the victory parade. Will it go ahead? And will President Putin be there? I believe it, it will go ahead. As you say, it's kind of a, a linchpin of of the society the the only thing that has been cut back on is this really wonderful tradition of the march of the immortal regiment which perhaps people in the west aren't as aware of uh, where people take pictures of their fallen ancestors who gave their lives for us in the great patriotic war and they commemorate them usually this is a physical march through the streets uh, but in some regions such as belgrade and bryansk that have suffered attacks recently these have now been shifted as they were in the pandemic to online uh, fashion where people can upload pictures of their relatives uh, that they lost in the war. So that's that is one concession given current events. But I don't believe that uh, the Russians could could get away with stopping Victory Day. Ideally, it will be also mixed with the uh, capture of uh, Artyomovsk, Bakhmut. But uh, again, I wouldn't see Prigozhin um, costing lives just to, for a symbolic win for Victory Day. And I know the West is doing everything they can to deny Russia that inevitable victory there. But yeah, the 9th of May is a huge deal and uh, people are very much looking forward to it. And I myself hope to be in the Four Seasons Hotel to watch it take place. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, Mr. Medvedev. He's been the prime minister. He's been the president. Who knows? He might be the prime minister, president again. He's still a very powerful figure in the National Security Council. Uh, when I knew him before, I would have characterized him as, uh, how shall I put it, in a way that isn't insulting, uh, a mouse. But he's now a lion. 
he's now the man uh, who makes the strongest statements, ferocious statements, like the one today to which you alluded. Uh, has he, as it were, experienced uh, a road to Damascus conversion, uh, or is he playing the outrider? Uh, does he have elections in mind? What's your informed uh, speculation about that? Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. He's kind of un undergone this transition or transformation whereby he was more of an advocate for dealing with the West before, quite liberal in his views. And then suddenly one of the most bellicose commentators on events, really saber-rattling, often trolling as well as he did, uh, had a bit of banter with Elon Musk, Comrade Musk, as uh, he called him. Uh, I even read uh, an article the other day talking about how much President Putin has done for Russia. And it even claimed that Medvedev was given the thankless task of playing this role as the sort of appeaser of the West to buy time for Russia, to make it look to the West like there was an advocate for them, there was a friend of the West inside Russia. Quite how true that is, I don't know, but possibly with uh he's quite a cunning man he, people have to understand he's incredibly intelligent he's a lawyer like putin actually by uh, education and he's uh, he's very he's very careful with his words uh, and mindful of them uh, and like like we've seen with sergey Laz lavrov as well these are razor sharp minds so i wouldn't say that uh, i i would be guessing but i do wonder actually if that is the case where they've used kind of this smoke and mirrors and deception to for this point in time which was invariably uh, hard going cop, to come. Uh, soft cop uh, routine yeah 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 i can i can actually entertain that idea now uh, oliver stone the great uh, hollywood mm. film director responsible for some of the the greatest movies of our time uh, has a new one coming out on, on the nuclear question. And in the course of uh, promoting it, uh, he made the point, I think yesterday, I read it today, uh, that uh, Putin is a great leader uh, whose people love him. Now, you've uh, been on the ground uh, in St. Petersburg and now in Moscow. Uh, his achievements cannot be gainsaid in terms of the transformation of the Russian economy, Russian prestige, and so on over the last 20 years, and the, the modernization of the Russian military. But do the people love him, in your opinion? Uh, yeah, of course, this is split across demographics. I think the most people that truly appreciate all the changes are, of course, those who were born in the Soviet Union, who suffered the pains of the collapse, and have seen just how far the country has come, well, since being on its knees, uh, being raped by Yeltsin and Clinton and all this, and the people suffered for that. Those people, I believe, do truly value. It's the younger generation, of course, who who aren't um, quite as appreciative of all the wonderful um, systems that they have, the, the roads, the infrastructure, the healthcare system, that even by comparison to the NHS, I'm in awe of. Uh, especially even the private healthcare and it's commensurably low cost uh, even to the UK. So there's a lot for Russians to be proud of. And even on the in, in the population where Russia had a terrible, I think it was deficit of like 1.5 million uh, de population decline has now been reduced down to tens of thousands thanks to the social yeah. programs and financial support for the family. 
so that yeah it's it's mainly the older generation who value it and the younger ones um uh, they're coming around i believe now with recent events in the west showing its true colors yeah well youth is wasted on the young i've always uh, thought that uh, last question mike um going to bed uh, soon are people nervous about what might happen during the night are people uh, fearful after this attack on the kremlin no i don't believe so um I th the, uh, this is going to put a lot of pressure on president putin he's already had his critics he's already had people like like we've seen with medvedev who want to get it done and get it done now a lot of impatience they think russia should have been much harder faster stronger from the offset none of this um, goodwill gesture falling back from kiev it should have all been uh, very much over and done with for the sake of the people of Donbass who've gone through enough at the hands of these criminals already. So I I am going to be paying a lot of attention to Putin in the coming days and maybe even his spokesman Dmitry Peskov to see perhaps what is said and how they maneuver now politically because it is going to create a lot of pressure and a lot of um, anger from people uh, you know, politically, pride-wise as we approach Victory Day. Mike Jones, as always, a pleasure to receive your wisdom. Stay safe and come back on the show soon. Mike Jones, formerly of St. Petersburg, now of, uh, of Moscow, a journalist and English expat living and working in Russia. I'll be right back with the Right Honourable Norman Baker on the British royal family. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. One of my esteemed former parliamentary colleagues is Norman Baker. Uh, I was never in the same party as him and never on the same political page as him, but I always respected him, uh, not least because of the role that he played in the run-up to the Iraq war, which changed, uh, of course, the course of British political history, including my own political history. And to some extent, maybe even his. He wrote a very important book on the strange death of Dr. David Kelly, on which I based uh, my film, Killing Kelly, uh, which uh, many people have been kind enough to say was a critical success at least. But he also wrote another stonking book, which I very much enjoyed, on the British royal family. Now, the significance of him being right honourable is that he, while I was only honourable, he was right honourable. Uh, that means he was a privy, is a privy councillor. That means the late Queen uh, had an obligation and the right to consult him uh, on great issues of the day. And the new king uh, has the same privy council and the same obligation. So whether or not he ever takes their advice, I have my doubts. And whether within the privy council he'd take the advice of the man who is exposed so much about the royal finances and how they work. As Norman Baker, I have even greater doubt. But I'm very glad to say that he is now on the show. The Right Honourable Norman Baker, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. Norman, it's been some time, so much royal news 
since we last spoke. You looking forward to the coronation? <laughs> it's not my cup of tea, George, particularly, I have to say that. Um, I shan't be out there waving flags, no. Well, as a member of the Privy Council, I thought you had a front row seat. Aren't you going? No, I shall be um, undertaking various uh, media duties to make sure that uh, the whole kit can is put into perspective and people are aware of how much it's costing. You know, we were told by Charles we wanted to slim down monarchy, uh, and yet this particular one, this coronation, is going to cost £250 million. That's five times more in real terms, five times more than Elizabeth's one cost, which is £47 million in 1953 prices. But here's something else, George, I don't know if you know this, I only found out myself about a fortnight ago, there are about nine European monarchies left. I mean, most of them have gone, of course, but the ones that are left, nobody else has a coronation apart from us. The Spanish coronation, the last one was 1555. Well, I didn't know that, and it is indeed the paradox that I wanted to start off talking with you about tonight. What is slimmed down about this jamboree? It is super fat. It is super obese. It is Big Mac, McDonald, gas-guzzling, Coca-Cola-guzzling, super fat monarchy that we're going to be looking at on Saturday, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, all, all the um, paraphernalia, the Disney world will be there, the, the golden coaches, the castles, the fake princesses, they're all there. The Disney experience for the Americans will be there. It's a PR puff for the royal family. Let's be quite clear about that. That's what it's about. It's about boosting their image. And actually, I think it's a mistake because um, the image they're going to present is one of an, our Aruritarian monarchy, which is now way out of touch with the population at large. And the opinion polls, which are reflected on the BBC, by the way, I have to say, the opinion polls showing 9% of the population care a great deal about this event. And two thirds of the population either don't care at all or don't care very much. We don't hear that. We don't hear, for example, that 14% of the population only think Camilla should have known that one either. So the media has booked its slots, it's booked its reporters, it's sorted out the whole thing way in advance, months in advance, and it's incapable of responding to the public mood, which is different to what they think it is. I, I feel sure, and in fact gratified uh, to hear you put numbers on it, but I, I would have felt sure uh, of the general direction of public opinion as you've just uh, described it. Um, let's uh, go to uh, Queen Camilla. You and I both sat in Parliament when we were repeatedly uh, um, counselled, uh, we were repeatedly assured uh, that she would not be the Queen. Uh, she'd be the Queen Consort. And now she's the Queen. And not yes. only that, she has announced that she's going to wear the late Queen Anne's crown because she didn't want to go to all the trouble of making a new one. So she's going to be using a second-hand crown. Uh, will that save her blushes? Because I reckon she's even more unpopular than the king. Well, I think she is. And I also think, actually, it's not that I particularly care about family relations, but I think it's discourteous to William and Harry 
to be honest with you, for her to take that title of Queen. And actually, George, you remember, it wasn't just Queen's consort. Go back a couple of years before that. She was going to be called the Duchess of Cornwall and stick with that. That's what she was going to be. You're right, I'd forgotten that. Uh, I mean, great efforts were made. I remember your now political colleague, uh, but then my political colleague, Andrew McKinley MP, now a Liberal Democrat councillor. Uh, I remember he put relentless pressure on the government on this question, and they were never done with their assurances not to worry uh, that this woman who'd driven Diana mad and possibly indirectly to her death, uh, who had been uh, an adulterer herself, having an adulterous affair with uh, Prince uh, Charles, who nobody uh, cared for, not to worry. Uh, she would not have any real uh, position in the Constitution. But now she does. Uh, how did yes. that happen? Why was Parliament well, silent on that? Well, Parliament just, uh, the, the, the government of the day, whichever party it is, just does what the royals want, and it has done for centuries. And whenever the royals come cap in hand and say we need more money, they get more money. When they say we want to have this particular title, they get that particular title. That's how it is. I mean, I think, to be honest with you, I, I, in my head, Camilla is not a queen, she's a mistress royal. That would be at least had the benefit of being the truth. Um, and of course, all these kings had mistresses, uh, and, and, and that's a matter of historical fact, but they never tried to make them the queen. No. No, they didn't. But I mean, I think Charles, Charles of course, is obsessed by her. I don't quite know why. I mean, we all have our individual tastes, I suppose, but I have to say Diana was rather a better character in my view than Camilla, but hey, that's up to Charles. However, we know that he was obsessed by her. We know he was carrying on an affair as he was leading Diana up the aisle and up the garden path at the same time. We know he wanted to be her tampon. I mean, this is, this is the man who is now king. It's a shabby uh, state of affairs, isn't it, Norman? And it makes the country look shabby. And maybe the country is shabby, and therefore that's what we deserve. Well, I think we are, I mean, in a way. And I think also that, you know, as, as always, uh, as it was as with David Kelly, as with the royal finances, as with this, the media lets us down. They don't do their job properly. They just kowtow and go along with whatever they're told to go along with. I mean, the media in this country is quite shocking. And the, the more I've been investigating, the more I've been looking into matters, the more um, disgraceful the media appears to me to be. They should be exposing these matters, but we haven't heard a whisper of it. This is the first time I've been able to be on air and, and talk about these things properly. You know, I go on here and talk about the royal finances and let me on for a minute or two, then, then shut me up. But this is, you know, these matters ought to be discussed. And given the opinion poll that only 14% want Camilla to be queen, this is after a barrage of public relations over many years, trying to persuade us otherwise. It hasn't worked. When's the next meeting of the Privy Council? Well, I don't know. I mean, um, <laughs> we don't have any votes, of course. I mean, I went to the Accession Council, 
um, when Charles became king, so the week after his mother. And by the way, why are we at the coronation six months on? If you believe in all this mystique, which the royal family is supposed to do, the anointing of oil and all that, if you believe in all that, that should take place immediately after the queen dies, not six months later. You know, so anyway, I went to the session council, George, which was the one um, where, uh, which took place immediately after the queen's death, which is when he actually became king. Uh, it was kind of chaired by this trust, God help us, who was a prime minister at the time. All the other prime ministers were there. Um, it was quite an interesting experience, I have to say. You'd have enjoyed it. Um, the best comment, I think, came at the end from, uh, from uh, the Deputy Speaker, Nigel Evans, who said to me when it was widely said, now we go out through the gift shop. But that was kind of how it was. <laughs> Norman, I know you're going to be very busy as, uh, as a royal expert over these next few days. I hope it leads to a second career uh, for you. Uh, and it goes well. Thank you very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows on the eve of the coronation of King Charles III. Let me take a break and after which I'll be talking to the one and only Laurie Spencer. Stay tuned. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Well, don't forget to vote on the poll. Did the Ukraine try to kill Putin? Is the Pope a Catholic? Get voting. Uh, only 41% think they did. 59% think they did not. At least I think that is only on the Twitter part of the poll. It may be different on the other platforms. Now, uh, as you know, I very much depend on my uh, loyal and generous Patreon supporters. I'm asking you to support me on Patreon for less than the price of a cup of tea in a very insalubrious cafe per week. That is a dollar a week. If you think I'm worth a dollar, support me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. And you can support me on the basic level or you can become a moats legend, which is something to be, not a title we give out easily. And so there's two new moats legends, Piaco and Syrah Aslam on my Patreon. Thank you very much indeed to both of you. Paul MacDonald says the president of Ukraine is a puppet of the demented Joe Biden. Biden is so dangerous, I could imagine him giving the go-ahead to Ukraine. God help us all. Love the show, GG. Thanks, Paul. Andy says, I'm not voting on this heavy subject till I've watched your show. Only just heard about it. Barely believable mainstream media. You and your guests and the people who call in will give me a much better picture of what's actually going on. My first and only real thought about it is how stupid it is for someone to make an attack on the president of a nuclear armed country. How very well expressed, Andy. Just think about that. Somebody gave a green light to 
potentially assassinate the president of a hypersonically intercontinentally ballistic missile holding country what could possibly have gone wrong Teresa Kelly my very good friend in the United States a moats legend says one can only imagine the quantity of contracts Ukraine oligarchs and evil empire oligarchs have out on Putin oligarch Vladimir Yatsenko offered $500,000 bounty to any weapons maker able to land a drone in Red Square during Moscow's upcoming Victory Day parade. He did. Grey Zone tweeted out the video the other day, hoping lots of folks retweet it. I've got a bounty on my head and a Mars bar in each pocket. Peter Kelly says, bizarrely, when reporting it, the BBC suggested that the Russians would be hugely embarrassed. Surely that's for whoever tried to assassinate a head of state. And Paul Cormican says, I'm surprised the BBC reported it at all. If the attempt had been successful, the BBC News 24 channel would have gone into overdrive celebrating the demise of Putin. That is undoubtedly true. The good news is that absolutely nobody watches BBC News 24. And James Butler says, there was an understanding that no political buildings would be targeted on either side. That's why Russia never hit any of the parliament buildings in Kiev, and the Ukrainians didn't hit any in the breakaway regions. So it seems strange that this has changed, either the Americans stirring up trouble or even a Russian red flag. Thank you very much uh, for that. I think that Laurie Spencer is now available. I'm hoping very much so. Laurie Spencer is the independent journalist, author, and radio personality and a good friend of the show. Welcome, Laurie, back to the mother of all talk shows. It's been too long. Um, just it before has. we go on to our mutual interest in the candidature of Robert Kennedy, uh, let me ask you how uh, this attack on the Kremlin is playing in the United States. Is it getting any coverage? Is it getting any traction? Anybody going, oh my goodness, there'll be trouble now? Or is it just another a news event that has flashed by? Honestly, the silence is deafening. I mean, the people are paying attention. I got a very rude awakening this morning when I saw the, the fire over the Kremlin. But uh, from our government, strangely silent. It's very odd, really, isn't it? Mm. Because um, this could, if, if this had succeeded, God forbid, if Putin had been killed in this attack, mm. what do they think would have been the Russian reaction? What do you think is going to happen? Of their country. They think right. he would have been replaced by a liberal throwing sweets at them, or that he would have been replaced by someone in a state of uh, patriotic fervor, determined to make this war far worse than it already is. And to do this so close to Victory Day is a strike at the heart of the Russian people, and they know it. And if we, the West, had anything to do with this horror, shame on us. They were our allies in World War II. 
I would like to remind everybody that we used to be very good friends. We were on the same side. We defeated Nazi Germany together. And we can't even honor them on Victory Day and let them have their day of celebration. It's unconscionable to me, George. Uh, did Donald Trump say anything about it? I know that Blinken said he absolutely could not uh, uh, con uh, confirm it and other uh, uh, panegyrics like that. Uh, but you would have expected Trump, although he's in Scotland rather in, than the U.S., to have made a comment. Has he? I have not heard a comment yet from President Trump or Biden or Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or any other presidential candidate yet. I think they're waiting until we get more information to say something. Well, let's move on to him, uh, and let's start with a negative. Uh, somebody brought to my attention, no doubt you already knew, uh, but I didn't. Some of the atrocious ways in which Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was joining in on the Russiagate hoax uh, when Donald Trump was elected. Uh, he several times, I've read them, uh, yeah. made completely false statements about Russia's role in defeating Hillary Clinton and thereby electing uh, Donald Trump. Uh, does that make you think twice about the rather full-throated support you've been giving him? I'm aware of that. Uh, I think that was from 2018, back at the height of Russiagate. Unfortunately, yeah, it seems that Kennedy fell for that nonsense. And I can't excuse that, nor, nor will I. But I will say this about my personal knowledge of Kennedy. I've, I've known him for 16 years. As you can see from these pictures, back before he had gray hair. <laughs> That was a long oh, yeah. time ago. That was I tried to draft this guy. I was involved in a draft Kennedy campaign back in 2007, George. We were trying to get him to run, uh, you know, after eight years of Bush. I felt that he was the best man to save America. But the time wasn't right then. His children were still quite young. His wife at the time wasn't supportive. And let's be honest, the momentum of Barack Obama was unstoppable back then. But I'll say this, George, back then, Bobby was endorsing Hillary Clinton in that race. He's been a longtime friend of Hillary's, endorsed her again in 2016, something I'm not very happy about. But, you know, he's been surrounded all his life by Democratic Party operatives. And he's been most of his life a good Democrat. But I can tell you, and I wish we had time, if you want, I'll give you the short version uh, of Bobby's red pilling. You know, he has awakened to a great many things in recent years. I can tell you 15 years ago, when I tried to discuss the assassination of his uncle with him, he didn't want to talk about it. I tried and tried and tried to get him to look at the evidence about his own father's murder because I don't believe that Sirhan Sirhan killed his father. And I brought him mountains of evidence, along with my friend Paul Schrade, uh, who just passed away at the age of 97 last year. You might recall Paul Schrade took a bullet in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel to his head and survived. And he, he spent the rest of his life 
trying to get to the bottom of what really happened that night. And he reached out to all these various members of the Kennedy family. He reached out to Bobby's widow, Ethel. He reached out to all of their children. And most of the time, Paul got the door slammed on his nose. They didn't want to talk about it. And that's always been kind of a thing in the Kennedy family, especially the RFKs. Uh, they don't talk about the, the tragedies. They always accepted pretty much without question publicly that uh, the Warren Commission was correct and that Lee Harvey Oswald shot President Kennedy and that uh, Sirhan, Sirhan killed RFK. But I worked on Bobby for, for years about this and finally managed to connect him with Paul Schrade. Uh, once those two began to sit down and talk with one another, and I can tell you Bobby was very resistant to doing so, but once he finally did, and Paul Schrade was a very persuasive man, rest his soul, uh, Bobby just spoke at his memorial service, uh, I think it was last week. So they became dear friends towards the end of Paul's life. And uh, I think that Paul helped to red pill Bobby about a lot of things. Bobby no longer believes a lot of the establishment narratives that he once believed. Now, I can't get inside his head. I'm not in direct contact with him. It's been several years since we spoke last, but I can tell that he's uh, skeptical of our involvement in this war um, and I'm not 100% satisfied myself with what I heard in his speech in Boston on April 19th. I, I understand he's a good diplomat, and he's trying to be kind to both sides, because what good does it do in negotiations if you're hostile to one side or the other? I don't really see how we can have peace. And that was always President Kennedy's approach. Even at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, his greatest gift was being able to get into this, you know, get into the head of, of Nikita Khrushchev. So I understand what he's doing. I understand why he's doing it. And we are in a new Cold War, George. And you know as well as I do, you're not going to get elected dog catcher unless you say mean things about Russia. <laughs> it's, it's 1955 all over again. I... I mean, I, I do. I too wish we had uh, time to go more deeply into it. Uh, but, but just before we leave it and and move on, I find it, in, and I have always found it impossible. Even before you gave us the benefit of your experience there, if if someone had murdered my father, especially on television, when my father was uh, headed for in one case and already in in the other uh, high political office. I would devote every waking hour of the rest of my life to exposing the truth about what happened. I have never understood the Kennedy family's reluctance uh, to do that, even in the case of the Sarhan case and your friend Paul's evidence. Only a fool could believe that Sirhan Sirhan was the genuine murderer of Robert Kennedy. He was shot from the back, as is abundantly clear, whilst Sirhan was never anywhere except 
standing in front of him. In front him. of him. He was standing how, how, three feet in front you, of him. How do you get to the stage where you're slamming the door on the face of a fellow victim of uh, that crime who wants to get to the bottom of it? I genuinely don't understand that. Do you? No, I didn't either at the time. It puzzled me a great deal. I, I understand it's painful. I understand it's personal. And there's another reason that we have to take into consideration as well. These conversations that I was having with Kennedy, this was back in 2007, 2008. And at that time, Senator Ted Kennedy was still alive, but he had just been diagnosed with the brain cancer that eventually took his life. As I understand it, it was always Teddy's wish that the family did not discuss any conspiracies related to the murders of John Kennedy or Robert Kennedy. And as long as Teddy was alive, the family respected his wishes. It wasn't until about two years after Teddy passed away that uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. became the first of all of the Kennedys to, to say that he felt that there was, in fact, a conspiracy pointing directly to the CIA in the murder of President Kennedy. Now, it took him a few more years after that to come around on the case of his father and be ready to speak about that. But once he did, he hasn't shut up about it. He wrote a book about it called American Values, which I highly recommend. Great read. Um, he really talks about the, the Kennedy's long war with the CIA that goes all the way back before President Kennedy's time in the White House. Um, and he's been very vocal about it. He has visited Sirhan Sirhan in prison. He wrote a letter to the California Parole Board recommending that he be paroled. That was uh, last year, I believe, and the Parole Board agreed, and they recommended Sirhan's release. After 55 years, that man's been sitting in prison for 55 years. And he's in his late 70s now. I don't think he's going to be hurting anybody. Um, unfortunately, though, California Governor Gavin Newsom disagreed and denied Sirhan parole. Indeed so. Um, it's all the more courageous, given what you've just told us, that RFK Jr. is now striking a number of political positions which directly threaten the military-industrial complex, uh, the intelligence security uh, complex, the CIA, and so on. He's yes. now pledged and to pardon uh, Julian Assange and uh, Edward Snowden if he becomes uh, president, a very significant and important uh, pledge. Uh, finally, even if, finally. Yeah, e even if he did nothing else, uh, I'd probably vote for him on that alone. But um, is there any sense that he's placing himself now in the same kind of danger that his father and his uncle were in? In other words, are you and I, perhaps, God forbid it, uh, going to be talking about attempts, at least, on the life of Bobby Jr.? God, I hope not. But he knows the risk he's taking, without a doubt. 
I heard a reporter ask him recently the obvious question, you know, what if they're trying to kill you? And he said, I'm, I'm not worried about my safety. So it's clear, George, that through this long process of waking up in his life, it's been a long road to where he is now, his red pill moment. I say better late than never. Sure. <laughs> it's about time you joined us, Bobby. I'm glad you're here. Um, but he's at that point. His children are grown. And uh, as you know, his 27-year-old son, Connor Kennedy, has actually done a tour of duty over there in Ukraine with the International Legion fighting with Ukraine. He's now back in the States, came home safe and sound, thank goodness. But he knew his father would not approve. So he didn't even tell Bobby where he was going. He didn't tell Bobby he was going off to war. He said, Dad, I'm going to be out of touch for a few months. I need you to trust me on this. I can't tell you what it is. I'll tell you later. And, uh, you know, after two months go by, Bobby starts getting worried. What happened to his son? So he's looking at credit card statements and he sees charges in Poland and Ukraine. And he put two and two together, figured out where his son actually was. So, yeah, I, I think that <laughs> Connor had to do that because he knew that his father wouldn't approve. And, you know, we, just saw we could this... talk all night, but alas, all night uh, is not available time? to us. How wonderful. Thank you for being with us again. Laurie Spencer, the independent journalist, author and radio personality. Let me go through the uh, poll. Did Ukraine try to kill Putin on Twitter? 2,707 people voted. That's a lot for Twitter. And only 41% thought that Ukraine did try to kill Putin. 59% not. Uh, but on YouTube, 75% thought Ukraine did try to kill Putin. And 25% thought not. That was 2,020 votes. On Telegram, 79% said Ukraine did try to kill Putin, 21% said they had not. And on the YouTube community poll, uh, where 7,300 people voted, it was 78% blaming Ukraine for trying to kill Putin. So something happened on Twitter. That can happen. At least they had to acknowledge our existence. Uh, to the lines now. The legend from New York, Erobos, is on the line on the Kremlin attack. Erobos, as always, welcome to the show. A most celebrous evening and greeting and salutations to you, your family, and your loved ones, Mr. Galloway. Thank you, brother. Before I preface um, what I'm going to say, my, my perspective on what what's happening at the Kremlin, I wanted to... Um, put a, a, a plug to you. Um, I was thinking, uh, I was listening to one of your Wednesday shows, and you were speaking to a caller, and you know, I had a, a vision in a sense of you having a, a global uh, international consultancy with your experience, with your decades in parliament, with your, uh, I know you should be in the Guinness World Book of Records for having two independent parties in the establishment parties and survived it and, and thrived and helped the people of your constituency out of the 195 countries in the world 
and you know I wouldn't doubt if you've been to all of them at least twice. I think you'd be a, a boon, especially in uh, in these electoral cycles or even out of electoral cycles. I think you would um you 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 know you'd have a uh, consultancy, and people could uh, ask for the benefit of your um, anti-establishment left political perspective and experience, and I think it would thrive. I think it's something that's very much needed in the world, and I wanted to plug that to you. Um, okay. As far Thank as my, you. Um, yes, as far as my perspective on what's going on in Ukraine, and you mentioned the Kerch Bridge, and you mentioned the, the assassinations of two prominent media officials. They, these were not even uh, military people, right? They, there were no, no personal grievances. They just wanted to make examples out of them. My view is this is this is the results of this stepping on eggshells, pussyfooting around special military operation. You know, I'm I'm on Medvedev's side, right? And I and I side with you, also with some of your perspectives about this. There is a way to preserve as much life as you can with the with the compatriots and the relatives and the historical connections with the people of Ukraine and pretty much get rid of Zelensky, the regime, you know, the, the government, the administration, the, the, the ministry of morons, get rid of all those people and push those Galicia Nazis right back into the border of Poland and, and maybe go after them there and finish what should have been finished in World War II. Uh, again, this is my perspective. Um, yeah, it, it, it's outrageous. It's outrageous. I think, um, I don't know Putin, never met him. Uh, but, but my feeling is he still has this um, Peter the Great, um, you know, residual thing about the, the turning to the West and the dependency on the West. I mean, he's a great strategician. He's a lawyer, as, as someone mentioned, just like Medvedev. You know, but it's like, you know, it, you, you need a, a firmer hand in dealing with this, right? Because, and the last thing I'd say is you have experience with this, unfortunately. There were three times, if my memory served me cor correctly, the uh, uh, Neville Chamberlain, right, when he was sent by the Cliveden set, the aristocracy of the British oligarchy, he went to, he went to Hitler three times in the Bundestag, Hitler's uh, summer house, and then the government residence. And every time he went to Hitler, Hitler was taking more and more Europe and, la and, and laughing at him. Right, Neville Chamberlain is the guy that's holding the umbrella. That's his iconic forever image, and that's all he was good for. And how did Hitler respond to all this appeasement and all this pussyfooting around? He bombed, he, he, well, I almost cursed because I'm outraged. He bombed the United Kingdom, and many people died and were traumatized, maimed. And I have no doubt that you have trauma from the scars of, of, of living through this period. And that's what appeasement with Nazis give you, because their only ideology is power. That's all they respect, the force of violence and power. That's Nazism. I, I read uh, Mein Kampf. I read a couple more things from them, and that was the common denominator of all this literature. You are, you are either uh, ubermensch or undermensch. That's it. Nobody else, nobody else remains. And, you know, and so uh, they need to take a stronger hand with this. And, you know, I've been trying to do a hashtag, Medvedev is right. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to catch on. But, you know, I, um, and I know time is always against us, so uh, I want to thank you for allowing me the time. Well, uh, 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 it was definitely the, definitely the call of the night, Robust. Thanks uh, very much for 
making it and it will have found an echo in many places uh, in Russia and, uh, and beyond. Thanks uh, indeed again for all the kind things about me that you said. Lee in Manchester wants to talk about Anthony Blinken and Victoria Newland. I'm always up for that. Go ahead, Lee. Hello, George. Hi. Yeah. Um, well said to Eribos, who's just been on. He was um, great, wasn't he? Yeah, he was belting. Uh, and just, uh, I've just, uh, a little Google search, George, anyone can do it. Uh, Victoria Newland's heritage uh, is, is a grandfather, Ukrainian. Um, so she's the main conspirator with Jeffrey Pyatt, Anthony Blinken, uh, her husband, uh, Robert Kagan. So Newland's heritage is Ukrainian. Blinken's grandparents, great-grandparents, Ukrainian. Um, Kragen's um, ancestry is uh, Lithuanian. Jeffrey Pyatt, who was the right hand of Victoria Newland in the Maidan coup, is Lithuanian. But each one of them, all four of them, um, are Jewish heritage as well, which makes it even worse to think that these people of that kind of heritage would um, associate with the right sector, with the Azov. Um, they must know what happened in Babiar, you know, to, to even to even put themselves in it. But is it is it some kind of a hatred from? Did they live under you know the, the grandparents? The parents must have lived under the Soviets. They, was they persecuted by the Nazis? Is this why they had this invested hatred of anything to do with Russia? Um, but I don't know. People... It's, uh, I'm stopping you only because of the hour, Lee. Uh, it was a very powerful uh, call. Uh, I don't know uh, what it is, but you're right to say that it's even worse. Uh, it's even worse that uh, that so many people who have made so much of the issue of anti-Semitism, the scourge, the specter of anti-Semitism, have absolutely no problem dealing with a government in Kiev that at the very least has as its main support militarily, paramilitarily, uh, the far-right nationalist and even Nazi forces that you alluded to. What do I mean? I mean that the Maidan would never have succeeded if it were not for the thousands of right sector, Svoboda, Azov, and outright swastika-flying, jackboot-wearing, SS insignia-branding far-right forces in Ukraine. That cannot be denied. Indeed, a Google search will show that every major news operation in Western countries reported on that exact fact that I have just imparted in all those years until it became inconvenient to do so. It is not true to say that all the leading Ukrainian Jews are 
oblivious to it. I often see prominent Ukrainian Jews denouncing uh, the calling of streets and squares and public buildings after people who were there at Babi Yar, who heard the cries of the women and children being massacred at Babi Yar. And now they see in 2023 public squares being called after the killers of their grandparents. What kind of world is this? So that does happen. There's one man in particular uh, who's the spokesman for the Jewish community in Kiev or in Ukraine uh, who regularly brings these matters up. And it's also even true that this is one of the reasons why Israel has not joined the war on Ukraine's side. It must be. But the supporters of Israel in the West, they know better. They know better than the Jews in Ukraine. They can easily, it appears, embrace the remnants, the dregs of the fascists of the Holocaust of the East. The Holocaust of the East may not numerically have been worse than the Holocaust of the West, but it was worse in this sense that more than a million Jews and many, many others, Polish people who were not Jews, Russian people who were not Jews, Ukrainian people who were not Jews, but more than a million Jews were cold-bloodedly murdered up close and personal, not in concentration camps, not even in gas chambers, not in the industrialized, systematic way of the Holocaust of the West, no. These people were bayoneted in front of their parents, in front of their children. They were killed in pits, pits filled with thousands of people. Read about Babi Yar. Watch the film, Einsatzgruppen, on Netflix. You don't have to go underground to watch it. It's on Netflix as the survivors of these pits tell you who it was that massacred them. In most cases, it wasn't even the Germans that murdered them. It was the Ukrainian collaborators who are now the people who are getting streets and squares called after them in Zelensky's Ukraine. I've got time for one last call. I, I can't refuse him. He's a legend. It's Tommy in Glasgow. Go on yourself, Tom. Love you, Bish. Salam alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Alhamdulillah. Thank you, George. Uh, can I just say, but I want to get 10 seconds on the Zelensky uh, crackpot. But before I go to that, Tommy, for anyone who's Irish persuasion thinking of giving a salute to uh, Prince Tampon, we'll call him, uh, think of Thomas J. Clark, shot 107 years ago today. Think of Bobby Sands who had to suffer... Uh, 42 years and, f and a couple of days on a hunger strike. God bless the brother in Palestine who stood uh, on 87 days in a Palestinian prison, maybe given the peace that he was so 
sadly denied uh, may be given Jenner. Uh, and also, from Prince Tampon, I heard the other day that he's a descendant of Vlad the Impaler, the original Dracula. So from Prince Tampon to King Dracula. Now, what happened, and be careful anyone who is stupid enough to say whatever they want to say, you know, that stupid pledge, because the lords of old, the peers of old, they were butt lickers. You know, my wee granny goddess used to say, gets everything but his butt wiped. Well, they did get their butt wiped, they get their butt licked. And we move on, finally, to the butt licker of Ukraine. Now, he's hiding in Finland, and Finland themselves committed a massacre against the Jewish people, against the Russian people. So Vladimir, mm-hmm. Vladimir, it's Putin. Get your finger out and wipe these Nazi scumbags off the planet. God willing. Well, there you go. That's Tommy tweet, tweet, in tweet, tweet. Glasgow. Tommy's uh, from our diplomatic wing. Uh, but a very powerful cry uh, that will have been heard, I have no doubt. I've overshot my time by two minutes. Please forgive me uh, for that. Only uh, time left to tell you the result of the poll. 13,850 people voted and overwhelmingly they concluded that Ukraine did try to kill President Putin. Well, it's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. I'll be back, God willing, on Sunday at the earlier hour of 7 p.m. UK time for the mothership the mother of all talk shows. I hope that you'll be there and I hope that you'll bring somebody else with you because I want to be able to announce next week there's 1.5 million people. Good night.